0: Church, as we continue in our time of worship this morning, a time that's been marked, and rightly so, by celebration and praise to our great God, would you continue with that theme in mind and heart as we turn to the Lord in prayer now? Father, in your word, the psalmist asks the question, why? Why do the nations conspire, and peoples plot in vain. Kings of the earth take their stand, and rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say. Let's throw off their feathers. God is a world spoken into being by the Lord through his living word, his anointed one, Jesus We are as those leaders who rejected you, who threw off your restraints, your loving, protective rule in our lives, that we might ourselves be sovereigns. We rejected the one enthroned in heaven. And yet, God, you laugh at us. The Lord scoffs at our attempts to turn our backs on him. And then he rebukes us in his anger and terrifies us with his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Lord God, you have installed Christ as king. His inauguration, the first inauguration, so beautifully pictured as he entered his city, Zion. This king who was born of a virgin, whose life was lived in perfect obedience in submission to his father. Lord, we will proclaim the decrees of the Lord. For you said to your son, you are my son, and today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter, dash them to pieces like pottery. And so the psalmist continues, You kings, be wise, be warned. You rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Father, we do desire, as your people, to serve you with fear, recognizing that a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That God, in your presence, without Christ's righteousness, clothing us we would be consumed for you are holy and perfect in your being and we're not father we desire to display our love for you and for Jesus and all that he did the symbolic kissing of the Son. Committing of ourselves to you in faith, lest he be angry and we be destroyed. For Father, this is all that awaits us who reject you. This is all that awaits those who have no hope in tomorrow, whose hope is built on their good works, on their possessions acquired, and their power expressed over others father for if we have no hope we will be consumed but lord god you have given us a living hope that is in your son jesus christ and therefore as the psalmist sings blessed are all who take refuge in him Lord, we take refuge in Jesus this morning. In his life given for us. And your acceptance of his sacrifice. Displayed by his resurrection. For if Christ and his death had paid his debt and his debt alone. If he'd had a debt, then Lord God, he would have remained in the grave. But in Christ's perfection, in his Innocence, his resurrection demonstrates your acceptance of his sacrifice on behalf of others. We who are called your children, whom you've known before you spoke all that is into being. Lord, and for this reason, we gather today to celebrate, for we have a hope in this moment, a hope that gives us joy despite our life's circumstances, a peace described as passing understanding again that is not moved or influenced by our life's experiences but rather by the character unchanging nature of our God who is peace our savior who is the prince of peace and so God as we worship today as we celebrate a reality that we recognize and commemorate once a year, but in truth affects each and every day of our lives, every moment. God, thank you for Christ's resurrection. Thank you for giving us life. Forgive us for how far we fall short of your glory. Lord, and even in this moment, we are still broken. Father, you replaced our Hearts of stone with those, as the prophet Ezekiel describes, of flesh. Hearts that are alive to you and are so by your grace through faith. And yet we still battle with weakness. And so, God, we ask your forgiveness in this moment so that what we bring to you and what continues to flow from our our hearts would come from hearts recognizing our need of your great grace, the gospel. Lord, and that's the power of the cross. That's what we remember today. Lord, may we never grow beyond our desperate need of your grace, but simply deeper in our appreciation of it, of what you worked for us when you died on the cross, what brought us into union with you, Jesus, so that now as we grow in that knowledge, God, it finds deeper, richer expression in our lives, in our interactions with others, as we love our neighbors, as we love ourselves, as we turn the other cheek in disagreement. Lord, as we love as Christ first loved us, and we can only do this because of the beautiful display of perfect love. This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. And he who laid it down was given the authority to take it back up because he is the resurrection, and the life. God, and we stand on these promises today with hearts full and with hope that looks to the day when you will return, Jesus, as Bob prayed. Conquering King. This time, not riding on a donkey, but riding a war horse And coming to bring an end And judge the living and the dead. Lord, that is the day to which we look forward with excitement. And so we do so in this moment because of the reality of your resurrection, Jesus. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, if you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them with me to the gospel of Matthew? Matthew's gospel, chapter 28. This is a chapter that I would imagine is familiar to many. It features verses that we've all heard and declares truths on which I would imagine many of us have built our lives. And the fact is, this morning, the text that we're going to examine together may, in a sense, be likened to our Constitution, in that just as everything that we know as Americans, that which defines us, determines the institutions informing our everyday lives, such as government, education, economy, and dictates the principles on which which drive our nation. Just as all of this is predicated on the Constitution, so too are our lives as Christians, informed by the text that we're going to study this morning from Matthew's Gospel. The truths contained in this chapter, Matthew 28, and, and their significance, I believe is best captured by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Corinthian church, where in chapter 15, he reminded them that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, but He didn't raise Him if, in fact, the dead aren't raised. For if the dead aren't raised, then Christ hasn't been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, Paul says, we are to be pitied more than all people. However, Matthew 28 declares as fact that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The promised king of Israel whose birth demonstrated the dichotomy between Israel's salvific expectations and God's planned deliverance. King Jesus was born to save, as we saw two weeks ago. King over history, over all creation. But for some 30 years, the king of glory remained in the shadows, so to speak, awaiting his inauguration when riding on a donkey. He entered his city. He cleansed, cleared his palace. He healed the sick and then accepted the prophesied praise of children. In these specific acts, which we studied This past week, Christ stepped forward and announced his kingship, only in the days that followed to the shock of his followers. Rather than driving out Israel's Roman occupiers, Christ died at their hands, betrayed by his own, those he'd been prophesied to save. Not at all what Israel believed their Messiah was sent to accomplish. Their their king was supposed to deliver them. Defeating their enemies and restoring their dominion. And this is exactly what King Jesus did. Only on a grander, more glorious scale than they ever expected. This king wasn't only victorious over Rome, but over all. All rulers, all authorities on earth and in the heavenly realms. And it's this victory that we're going to see together now. So if your Bibles are open to Matthew 28, I invite you to follow along as I begin reading from verse 1. Matthew 28 and verse 1, our author writes, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You're to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away While we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this is the story that's been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus said to them and came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Friends, as we consider our author's words, the first truth that I believe he desired to communicate in this chapter is that the king conquered death. The king conquered death, as given by the obvious testimony of the angel. Verse 6, he's not here. He has risen, just as he said. And if there was any confusion... Over what was intended by risen, verse 7 clarifies. He has risen, how? From the dead. So, this Jesus who was crucified three days prior and buried in this tomb is no longer dead. He's alive. But he's not only alive, as if this change in status wasn't convincing enough. But he's alive just as he said. And friends, this qualifier is of massive significance. Royal significance. Significance, And let me show you why. But before I do, remember at this stage in Matthew's gospel, Jesus isn't the first person to have died and made a comeback. In chapter 9, our author records the story of Jesus' healing of the synagogue ruler's daughter. Presumably, she's still living by the time we get to chapter 28. So she, Jesus isn't alone in having died and been resurrected. And if we were to look to Luke's gospel, then we could add the widow of Nain's son, to the list, And John, in his gospel, offers us Lazarus, which is a particularly interesting case in that Lazarus had been dead for four days before he was brought to life. So just because Jesus was alive again wasn't necessarily that big of a deal, so to speak. Now, what I believe made this resurrection royal or unique is first, Jesus foretold it. Teaching in the towns of Galilee in chapter 12. Verse 39, Matthew records Jesus' response to some Pharisees who'd come to see him perform, uninterested in his message. These guys simply wanted to see the show, to which Jesus declared, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth certain reference to jesus's death and burial but if if there's any question then sometime later as recorded in chapter 16 when jesus arrived in the region of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples who do the people say the son of man is and you may recall the answers some say john the baptist others say elijah still others jeremiah or one of the prophets to which jesus pressed but what about you what about you at which point peter just blurted out you're the christ The son of the living God and following this moment of divine revelation, Matthew tells us, verse 21, that Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. It's a pretty clear reference. his death and resurrection and it wasn't a one-off as as jesus repeated it at least once more as recorded by matthew in chapter 20 verse 17 where there as they were headed to jerusalem jesus said we're going up to jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law they will condemn him to death and turn him over to the gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified on the third day he will be raised to life this heart To misunderstand that statement, isn't it? If these predictions changed any, they became clearer and more explicit, didn't they? And friends, this this is what the angel was referencing when he spoke the words, just as he said. Christ's resurrection wasn't some reactionary measure taken to rectify a plan gone wrong. Meaning, Jesus' intent wasn't to come and live an exemplary life so that we might emulate his ethic and thereby eliminate hurt and hate from the world. No, Christ's purpose from before creation was spoken into being was to die. It was necessary as Jesus' garden prayer recorded by Matthew chapter 26 revealed. There, in words I would imagine are familiar to many of us, Jesus prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but what? As you will. And as we know, God is unchanging. His will as his person remains the same. And thus Christ's crucifixion followed, revealing and fulfilling God's glorious gospel plan. Just as he said. So, Jesus foretold his resurrection and he accomplished it. Meaning, unlike Jairus's daughter, the widow's son, and Lazarus, who were passive participants in their resurrection, Jesus was an active player. He worked with the Father to raise himself, as revealed by texts such as Acts chapter 2, verse 24, that revealed the Father's role, as Peter proclaimed to those listeners, God raised him from the dead. And then in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, the Apostle Paul declares that Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. And Christ's participation is clearly communicated in his own testimony recorded John 10. In John's gospel, chapter 10, he declared the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. And then again, one chapter later, chapter 11, where he declared unequivocally, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, we're all familiar with the concept of authority and many of us wish we had more no doubt a few are grateful that they don't as it always comes with increased responsibility regardless the authority that we know is limited because we're limited and this was a truth that I remember grasping for the first time as I sat at a dining room table with my year-old son screaming not me he was screaming because he refused to eat a green bean. Melinda had already left. She, she could tell the future, presumably, and she could see the lesson I had apparently yet to learn. And I believed I, believed I had parental authority. I believed that I could exercise that authority and make my son eat his vegetables. And this wasn't just a power trip, a young father out to prove himself. I wasn't simply trying to prove my might over myself. I was simply trying to teach my depraved son a lesson. But as I sat there witnessing what could best be considered a monumental parent fail, hashtag parent fail, I came to realize the limits of human authority. Now, sure. I could have forced the bean down that boy's throat, held his nose closed, and massaged his larynx until he finally swallowed it. But that forceful coercion would have only substantiated the reality of my authority's limits. I couldn't make him do what I wanted him to do, even though I knew that which I wanted him to do was good for him. He had a will that was beyond my power to control. And in that moment, church, I realized that to be a king means to have authority and not apparent authority, actual authority in Christ's foretelling and then accomplishing of his resurrection, his defeat of death, humanity's greatest enemy. Jesus demonstrated his authority over overall. He is the king because he conquered death, and he did so you and so that you and I might be saved for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish won't have what Christ defeated but rather eternal life do you have life this morning is Christ's victory your victory King Jesus is victorious because he conquered death and because he created fear in his enemies and I love how Matthew records this reality there in verse 4 where the angel, who, who don't forget, the angel was nothing more than the king's servant. So one of those beings that our author describes earlier in chapter 4 is attending to Christ following his temptation. The angel shows up and rolls the stone back and the guards, quote, were so afraid of him that they shook like dead men. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? The irony here is so revealing as those assigned to guard the dead become like dead men. While the dead man that they're supposedly supposed to guard is already alive. Now I believe that this picture poignantly portrays the limitations of human authority. The Pharisees believed that they could prevent Christ's resurrection. In chapter 27, Matthew details how the guards were posted for just that reason, because the Pharisees knew of Jesus' words to that effect, and so they were determined to stop such a thing happening. However, rather than preventing anything, Christ's opponents provided the occasion for a glorious display of the king's power as their champions shook, just as the rest of creation did, at his his servants' approach. Now, I've often told my children about my high school experiences and how radically different they were to those of many in our American system and how as a young, prepubescent 12-year-old, I was thrown into a college, which is what we refer to our high schools as, as with 18-year-old men. Eh, I, they were given authority, these 18-year-old men, to discipline disorderly students. I was not one of those disorderly students but for, for very good reasons. But I still recall my... My first school assembly, where we all entered, sat down while the seniors, those 18-year-olds, ensured that we remained quiet. I don't think I could have spoken, even if I wanted to. I was so scared of those seniors. And then our head, that was just the seniors. And then our headmaster entered the building. (laughs) I learned a lesson. You're going to learn a lot of lessons that I learned that day. I learned a lesson that day in regards to authority and the power of presence. Because our our headmaster entered and despite the fact that there was still some talking going on, he said nothing. He simply walked to the front of the room and then he just stood there staring at us. It wasn't 10 seconds before you could have heard a pin drop in that room. Some 600 dudes deathly quiet. There was an audible silence summoned by nothing more than Mr. Fincham's stare. (laughs) I think that was about the time I passed out. I'm just kidding. I was too scared to pass out, to be fair. That day, I I realized that authority wasn't determined by physical size or vocal volume. It was all about presence. Friends, the king's servant's Presence created such fear in the king's enemies that they became catatonic. Such is the victory of our great king, Jesus. His enemies cower in fear. This is a reality that I believe is beautifully described in Philippians 2, where the apostle Paul writes that God exalted him, Christ, to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, one day every single person in this room and on this planet will bow before King Jesus and declare him Lord. The only question is, will you do so in humble reverence or in paralyzing fear? And I pray that it isn't the latter, because at that point, your judgment is sealed, and you'll be cast out of God's presence into an eternity of unimaginable suffering. But praise God, that day hasn't come yet. Amen? And you can still confess your sin and submit to King Jesus' rule. Would you do that today? The king is victorious because he conquered death. He created fear, his enemies. And then third, he commands respect in his followers. He commands respect in his followers. After the reaction of the guards, Matthew provides us with this picture of the women's response there in verse eight to the angel as they hurried away from the tomb afraid, yet filled with joy. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? Afraid, yet filled with joy. And what a contrast to the guards' fear without joy, right? But facing their king's their king's servant, we're told that the women are both frightened out of their minds while simultaneously overjoyed. And, and despite the irrational nature of their experience, they, they're seeing an angel, a supernatural being. They're being told that a man who they watched die three days prior and was buried is actually alive and that he has a message for them to share with his disciples. Despite the irrational nature of their experience, they don't hesitate but they hurry away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy. When suddenly, who appears? The king. And what follows has got to be the most understated greeting of all time. Although I don't know that I could suggest an alternative. But when you consider that the last time the women saw Jesus, he was a corpse sealed in a tomb, his greetings, as, as rendered by our NIV. Or if you have a Holman, it's good morning. I mean, it's almost comedic. And church, I believe that this banality underscores the king's authority as it emphasizes how everything that has happened is nothing more than what King Jesus promised would happen. We're the ones who who see the extraordinary here and expect it to be conveyed in like manner. I believe our reaction to this event can often be like that which I've experienced with my dog, Samson who since we taught him to go outside to do his business by using the reward system, he still races back inside after every deposit, expecting to be celebrated for his success. Far from realizing that such behavior isn't special. It's not special. Samson believes that his efforts are somehow unique. And friends, I believe that we, like my dog, we read this story and we believe that what we're studying here is somehow novel to the king's character, when in fact, Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus greets the ladies. And without a predetermined gesture or verbal command, we see that they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Our king commands respect. And by command, I mean he not only calls for it, but he's worthy of it. As a first-year high school student, I got to know, I was, I was wise, I got to know those senior leaders responsible for the supervision of their peers in the absence of staff members. And some of those dudes were just goofballs who liked to yell and flaunt their position. And I had little respect for those guys, as did most everyone else, because their characters weren't consistent with their calling. However, there was one young man, our head boy. His name was Terrence Naledi. Mr. Naledi, as I had to refer to him, like our headmaster, Mr. Fincham, filled me with fear because he practiced what he preached. He never acted unfairly. And as, as students, we all had to show deference to all of those senior boys, but only Naledi commanded it. In church, King Jesus commands The respect of his followers. It's why the women bowed in worship at his feet. It's why in John's Gospel, chapter 8, he declared to all the Jews who'd followed him If you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And then again in chapter 14 If you love me, you'll do what I command. So, are you a follower of Jesus? Does your life reveal respect? For the king? Do you obey him out of a holy fear filled with joy? Or are you filled simply with fear? And what you do, you do so you hope you'll avoid the alternative. The king is victorious because he conquered death. He creates fear in his enemies. He commands respect from his followers. And he commissioned his church. In words that we know today as the Great Commission... Jesus informed those gathered with him in Galilee at the mountain that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. With these words, the king directed his disciples to his global mission, that of bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And this mission of the kingdom was inaugurated, as Matthew recorded it back in chapter 4. When following his temptation and John's imprisonment, Matthew records how Jesus returned to Galilee, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Matthew says, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Have you repented? Have you confessed you're a sinner? And by this I mean that you acknowledge God is holy and that he has determined how we as his creation or to live but that you willfully rejected him his will and his ways if you have and you believe that jesus is god's son then the scriptures declare that you belong now to christ's kingdom you're a child of the king and are called as a citizen of this kingdom christ's kingdom a member of his household his body as paul describes it in ephesians you're called to reflect his glory and to work then to spread His glory through the proclamation of his gospel. Have you repented of your sin and believed? And if you have, then as we celebrate our king's victory, be reminded of his commissioning, your commissioning. And this isn't an individual responsibility, although we each participate in its fulfillment. But this is a corporate calling our king's commissioning was for his church meaning his followers those who today we call Christians and while this ecclesial reference church most certainly pertains to every believer for all time I believe that it speaks specifically to Christ's gathered church in the now as gathered around our world today in celebration of the king's resurrection victory men and women covenanted together for the glory of God and the fulfillment of his commissioning King Jesus commissioned his church to make disciples of all nations by proclaiming his gospel as described in his word, teaching those who hear it to know him as he's revealed himself in his word, and baptizing those who believe, forming covenant communities that may encourage, equip, and hold each other accountable to all that God has called us to in his word. As Americans, if, if we were to discover today that our Constitution was a hoax, and that in fact it was built on a lie, our entire culture as we know it would descend into chaos, wouldn't it? I and mean, we'd have no reason to abide by the democratic process, participate in the judicial system, or support our president. You know, the foundational principles of our nation would be gone. Thankfully, our Constitution is true, and the lies of countless Americans attest. To the cost of the freedom that it called for. And therefore we can't ignore. Its establishment except to our own detriment. And friends in the same way. Only of infinitely. More significance. Is the reality of King Jesus's victory over death. For since Christ conquered the grave. He has provided salvation. To all who confess their sin and believe. Those who do. Are called by his name. And promised eternal life in his presence. While those who reject him. Suffering in equal measure. And please don't leave today in fear only as evidenced by the lives of the guards. For Christ creates fear in his enemies, but he commands respect of his followers. Confess your sin and believe in Jesus. And church, for we who are Christ's followers, his church gathered here on 1514 Old Ocean City Road, covenanted with one another for the purpose of his glory, may we celebrate our Christ is king. And he has commissioned us to spread his glory around the world. To his glory only. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Would you pray with me as we close? Father God, you are king. And as we look to your word that you have given us so that we might know you as you are, Father, our hearts are moved by the reality of Christ's resurrection. For if this is true, as your word declares it's true, it changes everything. Father, it gives us a hope in the face of that unknown, great unknown, that each and every one of us will one day journey through death. It promises us a hope that what will come on the other side of that physical end is an eternal spiritual fulfillment as we will be with you who went before us and defeated that great enemy. Father, thank you that you have given us the opportunity in this moment to respond. Lord, you have made clear that we are not as you are. We are not perfect. And Lord, that is something that each and every one of us can acknowledge and must if we are to have relationship with you. Lord Jesus, you came and fulfilled God's law perfectly on our behalf. You then died in our place on a cross, satisfying God's wrath at sin completely as beautifully revealed by Christ's resurrection. Lord, it is our hope in that resurrection. And the reality that we share in Christ's life now. That we have joy. That we have hope. That we may say one day as with Job. We will see our redeemer. We will stand and see our redeemer. Lord I pray that this is the joy and the hope. The confidence of each and every single one here. But if there are any that don't. Having heard the gospel. Lord, would you by grace open eyes? May we confess our sin. And there's no special formula that needs to be adopted in that process, but simply an articulation of heart recognition that you are holy, we are not. We have erred against you, for you alone are the measure of right and wrong. You alone are good, and we need your forgiveness. And then to acknowledge our belief that, Jesus, you are who your word declares you to be, who your resurrection confirmed you to be, God the Son, our Savior. God, I pray this day that we would recognize your great grace and that we might all leave singing with excitement, crown him with many crowns, our Lamb who sits on the throne. Thank you, God, for Christ's resurrection, the King who is victorious we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen.